Coming up today, we investigate football's social media boycott and hear about how Mari are trying to save their language from big tech. You're listening to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Natasha Bernal. Hello. Amit Koala. Hello. And Matt Burgess. Hello. This was the week when Amazon announced its profits had tripled in the first three months of 2021. The e-commerce firm made $8.1 billion in profits in the first quarter, up from $2.5 billion a year ago. Alphabet, Apple, Facebook and Microsoft also recently announced big sales increases. This was also the week when the UK government said that autonomous features could be used on motorways by the end of 2021. Cars will be allowed to use the automated lane-keeping system, a technology that controls the speed and position of the car while the driver goes hands-free. And finally, this was the week when a global shortage of semiconductor chips has hit the manufacturing, tech and automotive industries as companies struggle to get a hold of the key component for their products. Car manufacturers, including BMW, Ford and Honda, joined Apple and Samsung in flagging production cuts and lost revenue as a result. Let's get straight to facts. I'm hungry for new knowledge. Matt Burgess, what did you learn this week? I can definitely uh, fulfil your hunger here, James. This week I learned about the world's largest mango. Um, Colombian <laughs> farmers have grown a mango that weighs 4.2 kilograms, um, <laughs> and it's almost a kilogram bigger than the world's previous largest mango. After being documented for the record, the family that grew it decided to eat the mango. <laughs> Absolutely excellent. Thank you so much for that. It's made my day. Amit, what did you learn this week? Uh, I just want I saw my mum the other day and she had bought, she had spent 80 quid on 48 mangoes, which she was uh, in typical Indian mum fashion trying to foist upon me as soon as I, as soon as I arrived at her house for a social distance meetup. It was quite bizarre. Um, were I, any of them, were any of them giant mangoes? Uh, they were, some of them were very sizable, though I don't think they weighed in at 4.25 kilos. Um, I like the family celebrating by sharing and eating the entire mango. I think that's great. Um, it's excellent. Yeah, um, compete with that fact, Amit. I, I don't quite think I don't quite think I can. But I learnt about the other British military intelligence division. So you're probably familiar with MI5 and MI6, which is of course the home of James Bond. But there were originally loads of others, including MI4, which looked after maps, MI19, which ran an inter- interrogation of enemy prisoners of war, and MI7, which handled press censorship. You'd like to think that there was just like a really, really boring MI, like MI26, which was in charge of the procurement of paperclips. <laughs> there is a big list. I'd never really thought about it, but of course it makes sense. MI5, MI6, it makes no sense that they're the only two that still exist. So, But I'd never really considered the fact that obviously there must have been at least 14 others originally. Makes you think. Straight on to our first story. Over to you, Natasha. Yeah, so this story is about how big tech wanted to take indigenous people's language away. Uh, Could you tell us why, Matt Burgess? Yeah, so technology is obviously something that uh, offers hope 
uh, and also um, can potentially sort of damage languages that are sort of endangered around the world. Um, and some pe- some researchers estimated that more than 95% of languages won't ever become digitized or survive the crossing from uh, being spoken and written and, uh, and, and sort of communicated in other ways to the digital world. And this week we reported on one Maori radio station in New Zealand that has been pioneering language tech uh, around the use of their language and ca- helping to revitalize it. But it's also uh, coming under threat from big companies trying to piggyback off their work. This is a really fascinating story because this group of people basically running a very small, not-for-profit local radio station took it upon themselves to transfer the entire of the Maori language into tech tools that their community could use. Sounds like a very extraordinary project they took upon themselves, transcribing, wasn't it, thousands of hours of Maori audio to teach computers to speak their language, which is crazy when you think about the undertaking that must have been. Yeah, so back in sort of about 2018, um, they started to see a need for speech recognition uh, technology after they digitised a massive audio collection that the radio station Tihiku had uh, accumulated over the last 30 years of broadcasting. And the team there sort of say that um, through through their collection of all this language over the years, they really learnt about a lot of idiomatic phrases and co- colloquialism and unique phrases and essentially sort of how the Yap language was being used and spoken by people uh, in, in the real world and as they went about their lives so not just the pure sort of like fundamentals of uh, sort of written or spoken language um and um this is part of a like a bigger sort of org organization and effort around sort of language revitalization and um basically people from other communities have looked at this uh, radio station and the efforts that it's doing um and they've decided that this approach that the, the radio station has been doing is actually effective and, and could work very well and they want to sort of mimic its strategy um and since that sort of uh since their work in this space has begun uh, the radio station has fielded a sort of a dozen requests for its data uh, or its model that it's using for automatic uh, speech recognition technology Um, and it's had requests from big corporates and tech companies that want to use the data to put uh, the language online or also to build out their own language services that could potentially be sold to others. Okay so to put this in context Maori is spoken by around 50,000 people and 147,000 other people say that they remember a bit of it or they know a bit of it which is sort of like you or I saying you know we remember you know, French from school, or we might say something in Latin out loud or something like that, but but not really knowing it. So this is this is fundamentally an endangered language, right? And losing a language is a huge loss of scientific information, cultural knowledge and, and people's identity, right? So what does it take to condense all of that information, all of that cultural heritage into a computer and build a language from scratch? Yeah, there's a lot that needs to be done in sort of the overall process, um, which there's a lot of data that is required, uh, but also that data needs to be structured and be able to be understood by machines. Um, So to create a sort of speech recognition tool from scratch without having any data uh, already collected or anything like that, it typically requires about sort of 10,000 hours of uh, annotated audio, some experts that work in sort of speech recognition technology tell us, um, which is a very 
daunting task, if not something that is probably impossible for languages and people uh, and groups that have uh, a small amount of language uh, speaking people still, uh, and the sort of like the populations are shrinking. So um, you need a lot of data to be able to produce something that is um, that is very workable and, and can be understood by machines. And this group in uh, New Zealand, the Maori group, they started a public drive to be able to get people to record and annotate audio in their mother tongue uh, back in sort of 2018. And within a few weeks, they had 300 plus hours of annotated audio. And the annotation is very important This because of this, because as well as they've got the audio itself, they've also got the, the text that goes with it and the understanding of it. And this allowed them to build a speech to text engine with initial uh, word rate error of around 14%. Um, and just to, to put that into a bit of context and comparison, uh, sort of Google's own tool uh, around the same time in 2018 um, was built with a 12,000 hour data set and an error rate of 6.7%. Um, so the uh, so the radio stations, essentially its error rate was not that uh, not that bad compared to uh, Google's effort and the, and the lack of data that it had, they had compared to sort of like wider English language versions of building speech recognition technology. And that's why this data is important really so uh, the radio station is adamant that people who have only uh, should try to profit from their data should be the Maori people um, themselves and basically over the last couple of years since they started being pioneers in this indigenous uh, language recognition technology others have been trying to get it from them yeah, so it's, it's really interesting because obviously they're saying this is for the Maori people, but you mentioned earlier that there are other local communities that are using it as a base to build their own um, their own sort of speech pattern recognition tools as well. And if you think about that in context around the world, it's estimated that around 7,000 languages are currently spoken today. 90% of those are spoken by fewer than 100,000 people. So if you think about the, the globalisation that's happening right now and over the last few decades, many languages are struggling to survive. Indigenous languages are, are especially vulnerable because they're at risk of being wiped out. So in short, it's it's really good thing that people are interested in languages. There is a chance to perhaps do the same um, as the Maoris have done with, with their language in other uh, locations in the world. But, but in this story, it's really who is interested in, in this language that's important. In this case, it's big US corporations that are trying to market to people who speak the Maori language and profit off of the cultural research done by people from that community, from this sort of local radio station who, who built it. And I wonder, why why does a corporation want that? Why is, that, why is it a value to them? Yeah, so the um, so since the Tihiku uh, radio station filed, um, uh, well, created the technology a few years ago, they've had about a dozen requests for its data or for the model, um, and one of those and one of the very first ones that sort of really opened their eyes to uh, why this data might be useful for other people was an American company called Lionbridge that uh, according to its website uh, specialize in, specializes in translation and localization solutions for global enterprises and it said that this company uh, approached uh, several sort of Maori groups and academics and also radio stations to offer people uh, around $45 uh, US dollars an hour to anybody who could provide Maori audio all they had to do, uh, uh, the company said, was to speak uh, Maori on their phone and record it and send it across. Um, and that's sort of like, bit, for them, that would be helping to build up this uh, bigger database. And um, as I say, since then, there's been 
other requests from other companies, other groups looking for this. And it's really about um, essentially the value of this data and the value of this uh, this cultural information and trying to uh, other other people trying to use it and um, do something with this data. We don't specifically know 100% what all the sort of requests for this data have been, uh, what the end goal is really. But I think it's it's fairly um, fairly believable to think that there is essentially some sort of commercial effort at the ends of the a lot of these uh, companies or organizations that are getting involved with or trying to get involved with with this data they want to use it and they want to be able to repackage it build other language tools with it maybe sell it back maybe use it commercially in other ways and really i think that there's a, a big question about does this all come back to about back to using money and, and making money at the end of the day yeah fundamentally it's it's you can suddenly market to a whole new population of people you can say oh we offer an extra language you can sort of sell that on right there's huge commercial benefits to doing this sort of thing and if, but 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 there is also a flip side to this right there's there's the argument that if languages like maori don't appear on search engines or online in a more widespread way they could die out right so i think it was in 2019 the un said that four in ten indigenous languages are in danger of disappearing so, so when you think about it in that context if you think you know if you don't do anything about it if it doesn't go online if it's not widespread people might stop using it what is the harm in sharing that language even if people are going to profit off of it yeah and that's where that's some of the work that's been done in this particular case and why we're talking about this story now is is quite interesting it's because um this maori group have, have very much taken it uh upon themselves and in the sort of like visions of the un and uh, other people that are out there to, trying to preserve and save languages to really try and take ownership of their own data and of their own um of their own sort of uh, cultural information and, and history so the group said that they they uh, aren't going to sell their data or give it away for research and that sell, selling or giving away the data really invites western corporation corporations to mine their language uh, and also from that they can get thousands of years of traditional knowledge uh, and then use it for commercial opportunity and one of the big things that the, the team behind this also says that is that they if they were to sell it or give away their data um, they would be sort of entrusting data data scientists with no connection to the language uh, to develop the tools that will shape the future of it because uh, if it is something that goes online or if it is uh, or if they do find other ways to use their speech to text recognition systems whether that's in teaching people the language in the future or or trying to preserve it and, and make sure that there are ways that people can access it they want people that uh, will benefit from the language to be involved in this and obviously there are sort of economic opportunities around this type of technology and uh, and using the language but the maori people really say in this in this instance that they want to see the benefits of uh, their their data and language coming back to them so one interesting thing that they have done as part of this is when they have shared their data with with universities uh, or other groups um, there are very sort of meticulous terms that have been laid out uh, in sort of data licenses which are a little bit different to how other uh, efforts have worked and according to this license the project says that um, the Maori people must uh, must directly benefit from uh, the systems that are being developed and their data will continue to belong to them um, so they can sort of try to safeguard and protect their 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 language and culture going forward that's where this story has such wide relevance right we're so used to giving our data away for free and not really understanding the consequences of that deal that we have with 
big technology companies, the whole digital economy is is kind of built on that contract of the free flow of data and free access to products and services. What the Maori are saying is, this is our data. It needs to benefit us, not you. And that's a bit of a step change in the way we think about ownership of not just personal data, but data related to who we are and our culture and our sense of history and self. And that's a really, really interesting proposition, isn't it? It is. And I think that they, they very much uh, frame it in the terms of sort of like uh, data colonization and, and lots of um, things around sort of the um, essentially sort of how, uh, how, the, how the group have been treated, treated racistly within the country in history and, and been uh, prejudiced against. And they're saying that actually looking forward, we want to learn from uh, some of the, from the horrific ways that we've been treated and we want to protect our identity and we want to keep our language and our data uh, to something that can really benefit us and it's it is a really important point because there are lots of different efforts and uh and and way uh, companies and groups uh, uh all online trying to build out languages resources so they can be used by other people and they can be used for new types of technology um but the question is really about who who benefits from this and actually are the people that this is about and and, and who the data belongs to are they are they benefiting benefiting from this at the end of the day Built a really, um, it's got a really strong reaction um, online, and there's been lots of really interesting discussion around this story. If it's got you thinking, get in touch. Podcast at wired.co.uk, and we'll include a link in the show notes. Our second story this week is about football, but actually, it's about communication in the digital age really so Manchester City could win the Premier League title this Sunday if they beat Crystal Palace and Manchester United lose to Liverpool which is certainly a possible outcome and if they do they'll become champions during a social media boycott. Amit explain what's going on for us. So football isn't the grip of something of a hate speech epidemic uh, reports of abuse to anti-racism campaigning organisation Kick It Out raised by 53% between 2018-19 and 2019-20 seasons, despite a large chunk of the last season being played without fans in the stadium. A study conducted by Signify and the PFA found that more than 3,000 abusive messages were aimed at Premier League players during the last six weeks of last season, more than half of which were racist. The same survey also found that 43% of players had received targeted racist abuse at some point in their career. And now uh, fans and teams and players are, are starting to take action against this. So from 3pm on Friday, which is the day we're recording this, until midnight on Monday, the Premier League, Championship, UEFA and a bunch of other organisations in and around football have decided not to post anything on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. They've been joined by uh, organisations and teams from other sports as well. So this is a wide, large-scale boycott of social media uh, in protest, I guess, at their failure to take action on racism. And if you're not into football or any other sport, this is still a story with really, really widespread implications because the fundamental problem here is platforms failing to take action against abuse. So abusive posts reported to platforms are not always removed. Platforms themselves are constructed in such a way that abuse is often incentivized and amplified. This isn't just a problem for football or sport, right? And after years of abuse, players have rightly had enough. One of the most high-profile recent examples, former Arsenal striker Thierry Henry quit social media altogether. And there's real momentum behind this campaign. And for me, there's a sense that 
maybe lockdown has made things worse, right? Particularly in sport. The stadiums are empty, fans don't have anything to do, and some of them are just spouting awful racist abuse online. There certainly seems to have been a spate of incidents recently of black players making mistakes on the pitch and being subjected to huge amounts of racist abuse on social media during and after games. And players have rightly said that the platforms aren't doing enough or basically anything to tackle this problem. So they're boycotting them. That's why we're talking about this story this week. And Amit, you've been looking at the strange industry that's popped up to manage the relationship between players and fans. Yeah, that's right. So social media is kind of built on this idea that athletes, footballers, celebrities, whoever can communicate directly with their fans. But, you know, I think in reality, we all know that, you know, Neymar isn't sitting there on his phone tapping away, choosing Instagram filters after the game, right? Most big names, whether they're footballers or other singers or celebrities or actors, will have people managing their social media. And it's these people who are often the first to see any abuse as it rolls in. Um, This week, I spoke to one of them about what it's like being in the eye of the storm. He manages a number of professional footballers, including a Premier League player. He says that the job means being constantly on call and constantly maintaining vigilance in case players post something that they probably shouldn't. He always has to be online, kind of keeping track of what his players are posting, what comments are coming in, what messages are coming in. He's the first person to see the stream of comments coming in from fans, and he tells his players not to check the comments, basically. Don't check your requests. Um, he's seen players do it and get really affected by some of the the hateful abuse that they get sent. Um, He himself says he's developed a thick skin over the years and he sees his role as kind of being like a shield. You know, he's helping the players with their online presence, but also shielding them from some of the nastier elements. So as well as kind of writing and posting tweets and messages, he might edit photos. He manages his team of designers creating custom graphics. So footballers have this um, habit of posting, you know, after a, a win they'll post the result with like a nice club logo on it and a great photo from the game so working on that kind of stuff and what what's happened i think over the last few years is that this role has changed from being or it's 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 more from being kind of a marketing role and quite a, quite a a basic role into something a bit different you know as i said at the top it's these direct relationships have become twisted and now there's this whole industry of people that are dealing with mitigating the racism that comes across and often they find themselves in a situation where they have to talk down their clients who are really upset by the messages that they're getting sent and trying to convince them you know not to reply to this racist not to get upset you know to go through the proper channels to to trust the club to take action but what we're missing here is any action from social media platforms to actually cut down on these kind of hateful messages that are being sent the thing that really comes across in the article that you've written about this amit is how fundamentally weird this job of being a social media manager for a celebrity is because as you say these social platforms are meant to allow footballers other celebrities to have a direct relationship with their fans but in reality the nature of that relationship is so broken and there's so much abuse going on that you wouldn't want to have that direct relationship so it has to be managed and you wonder why players want to be on social media at all so aside from the racist abuse which is obviously vile players sometimes post things that they probably shouldn't or overworked and inexperienced social media teams can mess up as well there have been a couple of high profile slip-ups recently so Manchester City player Phil Foden on Twitter, his team posted out an image of Paris Saint-Germain forward Kylian Mbappe ahead of a Champions League t- um, game recently. The tweet was swiftly deleted because Foden was annoyed that it seemed like he was targeting Kylian Mbappe um, and saying, I'm going to take you down and I'm better than you. Um, more amusingly, Tottenham reserve goalkeeper Joe Hart 
if anyone remembers him, also had to apologise recently when his social media team shared a triumphant post on Instagram after Tottenham were unceremoniously dumped out of the Europa League by Dinamo Zagreb. It's another reminder of how weird and just fraught being famous on social media has become. Yeah, the, the Jay Hart case was a really good example of overworked social media teams thinking Tottenham had won when they'd actually lost 3-0 and posting a message after the game being like, great victory last night, guys, from Jay Hart's account and the fans being understandably a little bit upset by that. But, you know, it is, I think, still worth it for the players to be on social media in a lot of ways because despite all the negative interactions and the press reports around it, there are benefits too. And the social media manager that I spoke to said that, you know, interactions with the fans that his players get are, you know, 80% positive. And there are commercial considerations too. You know, a strong online presence can help players secure commercial deals. Uh, there are some players that have secured commercial deals simply because their personality on social media kind of shines through and they're able to become characters almost. And that's kind of helped them build their profile, even if their performance is on the pitch are a bit average. Um, so they get good reactions. And, and as, as we've talked about, it allows them to connect with their fans directly rather than have their world's words filtered through the media, which would have been the case in the past. And that direct relationship allows players who have large followings and who want to, not all of them do, but who want to, to affect social change. Look at the campaign that Marcus Rashford was able to wage in the UK around feeding school kids during the holidays. He was able to do that because he had a large social media following and because he was able to speak directly to fans. You know, in the past, without social media, that wouldn't have been possible. So I think there are benefits to them being on there as well as drawbacks, but you can see why they, they want to hire people to kind of help them with it. But the reason that we're talking about footballers and social media this week and the reason that this boycott is happening is the balance between the benefits and the downsides is skewed and becoming more skewed. Things aren't going well. And the social media manager that you spoke to is kind of pessimistic about the impact that any boycott can have. Essentially, this putting a plaster on quite a considerable wound. And it's the platforms that need to act, right? Not the players, not the leagues, not the clubs, and this might apply some pressure, right? Yeah, you're right. So the, the, the guy I spoke to characterises the, the racists abusing footballers on social media as, you know, teenagers and trolls that hide behind anonymous accounts and, you know, who are just looking for attention. But if someone who's just looking for attention, it's quite difficult to know what to do with them, how to make them stop, right? And the boycott goes both ways. It raises awareness of the rise of racism, but it could also provide a badge of honour for the racists. You know, it's the ultimate signal that you're hate campaign is working if you force the people that you're abusing off the platforms that you're on right and ultimately i think this is this is something i I talk about a lot and it's this is a problem for platforms but it's also a societal problem right it's not that all football fans are racism racists or that racism only exists in football football like anything else is a mirror of society and we are now in a society where there are essentially no consequences for what you say online or even offline for certain people you know we're in a society that has monetized saying outrageous stuff as a sort of surefire path to celebrity and success and if you've got the stomach for it the best way to get a tv contract is to just be cruel essentially right we've seen loads of columnists and tv personalities make their names by saying stuff that is borderline racist sometimes overtly racist and being lauded for it so is it any surprise that football fans or other people on football on social media are are following their lead A good way to think about what's happening on social media is to try and 
compare it to what might happen in the real world. I often find anyway. So let's say I go into a football ground and shout racist abuse. I could be expected to be banned for life from that club and I'd probably end up with a criminal record and an awful lot of people that thought I was an absolutely horrible human being and they'd be right to think that. On social media, the consequences aren't quite the same, but the impact of what I say can be much bigger Effectively, I can be completely anonymous and have a megaphone. The way that social media platforms are set up, and I think this is the the root cause of the problem, is they're set up to amplify abusive comments or certainly to amplify extreme views, be it by people agreeing with them and wanting to jump on the bandwagon or people finding them outrageous. And the only way that they can see to respond, having found something outrageous, is to amplify it to kind of anger retweet it or share it saying, you know, this is disgusting. Social media platforms aren't set up very well to stop people from talking. In real life, if someone says something that's really, really outrageous, you might just walk away or everyone might ignore them. On social media, we're seeing that that isn't the case. And this is having a really, really negative impact, not just on professional footballers, but on people in all walks of life and all backgrounds. Because it's not how we communicate in the real world. And there's this disconnect, right, between... What might happen if I racially abuse someone in real life? And what happens if someone racially abuses someone on social media? Yeah, and you wonder how we can change social media to fix this. So whether we need to go to a system more like Reddit, where there's upvotes and downvotes, and actually these hateful comments just don't get visibility because they get downvoted. But then you think about, well, actually, will the people that are posting these comments even care? On on Reddit, you see people almost chasing downvotes in certain situations as much as they chase upvotes i think the problem is when you're applying any sort of value judgment whether positive or negative to comments and there are always going to be people that chase that uh chase that number right you know they're chasing either more upvotes because they want to post content that people like or they're chasing more downvotes because they relish in posting content that people hate and it's a real real problem and i'm not really sure what the answer is apart from maybe better checks, tougher restrictions on creating anonymous accounts. And I'm not necessarily advocating for this, but, you know, if there is a link from the things you post online to your real world persona, personality, then maybe that would go some way towards addressing the problem. I don't know what the rest of you guys think. It's tough, isn't it? Because social media seems to be a horrible place for everyone except a certain type of person right <laughs> so i know there have been like proposals out there to fix things right you know there should be more checks uh, what would happen if uh, new rules were put in place if people who were you know taken off twitter were not allowed to go back on using another name what if we made it harder for people to hide um what if you know twitter accounts uh, facebook accounts uh, tiktok accounts were linked to people's ids i mean it, there's there's a big privacy problem here as well right people like the idea that you can go on places like twitter and just say whatever you want and it's like a democracy right it's all the same as as the public square right you can just go out there and have a scream and there won't be any consequences but obviously it's devastating for everyone that has to listen to them right and you can't turn it off if you if you're a public figure you can't necessarily afford not to have a social media account right so there are consequences there and on on the point of um of sort of anonymity and things and natasha you raised that like the privacy point there i think that one the solution of making everybody uh who is online be 
verify who they are who they say they are is not a solution that works in any way because people do need private spaces and they do need to be able to speak anonymously that you, you look at journalists you look at activists you look at people who are um doing anything that uh would not necessarily uh that could not please somebody who's in power or 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 uh try to change the status quo in any way for, for positive reasons um there needs to be chances and opportunities for people to be able to speak anonymously um but how do you tally that with um, the the question of uh, stopping people who are abusing others online and causing all sorts of damage and, and, and problems in the world? So there is, I don't think there is this easy, clear-cut answer in any way. That point about privacy and linking people's online accounts to physical identification is often one that's brought up by people who don't understand the full implications of what will happen. It's, it's sort of a non-technical argument to what, I feel is a problem that can be solved technically. So you've got to look at the problem of the way that these platforms are geared up to encourage people to spend more time on the platforms and to encourage people to talk more. And we've we've ended up in a position where the biggest social media platforms in the world are all built on this idea of the attention economy, that the more time people spend on a platform, the more valuable that is for the platform because they're reliant on advertising and engagement metrics to go to advertisers and charge a certain rate to reach a certain person. So you've got the problem where really the only way to react in an active way to seeing something abhorrent on social media is to amplify it, right? No one's going to click the little arrow in the top corner saying report a post. It's putting all the onus on the community to moderate itself, whereas actually the way that the community community moderates itself when you have as amit you were saying people that have become famous for being racist they're famous for being racist because every time they say something racist they're amplified by people who find their racism abhorrent and that's because the social media platforms are set up to amplify that kind of behavior and i don't need to name names but i'm sure we all know who i'm talking about or some of the people that i'm talking about and the same goes for the random twitter eggs who are throwing horrible racist abuse at black footballers they wouldn't have a platform were it not for the way that social media companies are set up to amplify divisive speech. But maybe we're slightly culpable in this as well, in the sense that, you know, I think whenever whoever posts something awful on Twitter, there's almost like a race from sort of people on the other side to who can who can craft the funniest put down, who can express their outrage at this in the most viral way. And actually it becomes almost a incentive. There's an incentive on on the other side as well to share it and to say like i'm so outraged by this and i need to tell everyone i know how outraged i am by this as you say james but then you get likes and you get retweets and you get shares off the back of that and just as there are people on the you know right or the far right that have made their name being racist there are people on the left and the far left who have made their name being uh anti-racist right there are people whose social media personality is all about debunking or you know fighting racist and which is fine but then it all it serves to do is amplify those comments in the first place so let's bring this back to footballers and the boycott because as we said this is a problem that, that exists outside of football but the football community if you like has taken it upon itself to make a stand and i suppose the question that we need to be asking now is will this stand have any impact and if it's going to have an impact what should that impact look like 
I think it's not going to do anything. I mean, it's good that they're doing something. But one thing, when we were, before the pandemic, when games had loads and loads of fans there, there used to be massive sort of incidences that that were, you know, put on the news where black players were insulted by fans from the opposition and there was racist abuse held at at, uh, players. And it's, it's ridiculous that at that point, nothing was done. There's been so long that nothing has been done. And what should happen is everyone walks off the field and off you go. Like if, if we cancel enough games, people will stop acting like complete idiots. That's what I, I think the more drastic um, measures need to be taken to, to stop this from happening. If it's transferred online, this isn't something that just happened because of Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. This was here before. It's just transferred to a new medium. And it's great that they've, they've decided to do something in a unified way. But honestly, they've been massively toothless. They should be protecting the players that are playing. For them. Imagine being in a, in a stadium and, and, and you're like with a dozen other people and, and you're being held abuse at from, from people in the crowd and you're wondering, are they going to throw something at me? That You shouldn't have to work that way. No one should be in that situation and they should have been more protected from the very beginning. That's what my opinion is anyway. <laughs> so I think from my perspective, the reason that I'm hopeful that this might work is because it hits social media companies in a place that they hate to be hit, which is in their PR departments, right? And I think that the way to get action out of these companies is to hit them either in their you know, commercial revenue streams or in their PR and actually they're linked together. And if you can make Facebook and Twitter and Instagram look bad and look bad in front of their advertisers and look bad in front of the people they users, then you might be able to affect some meaningful change. So that's why I'm hopeful. I think the idea that the way to fight racists on a platform is to go off that platform is deeply depressing. Like you shouldn't be in a situation where you have to give up a platform because of a handful of people that are, you know, hurling racist abuse at you. That's not a long-term solution in, in any, by any means whatsoever, but maybe it will force people and force these platforms into adopting stronger controls. They've obviously adopted some measures to kind of cut down on this sort of thing. You know, the ability to turn off replies, turn off comments on your posts is coming to quite a lot of different platforms now. The ability to turn off DMs or to only allow your verified accounts to dmu is also available to people that they can use that if they want to so there are a few steps that have been taken and i think it's not that the boycott will think make racists think again because it definitely won't but what it might do is make platforms think about the pr damage that scandals like this do to them and actually maybe it's worth their while to actually do something about it for once it's depressing isn't it that ultimately if it becomes in their commercial interests to take decisive action and to be more creative with how they might solve this problem if it's in the commercial interest they're more likely to do something podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that what can social media platforms realistically do to get on top of this problem and make sure that we're not having another discussion about racist abuse on social media in the near future although i worry that we probably will be podcast at wired.co.uk time for a couple of your emails before we finish the show this week miki writes in from japan to say that they started listening to the podcast when the pandemic hit and have since recommended it to some of their english-speaking friends on the subject of vegan cheese which we've had i think more emails about than anything in the show recently they share some news from japan so recently he uh, they tried um 
something called Japanese melting cheese, which is made of soy, uh, soy milk. Unfortunately, it didn't melt or taste brilliant, but they say that it was okay. It tasted a bit like the highly processed cheese that you got back in the 1970s. Um, he's, uh, they say that because they've eaten um, things like tofu, which is very popular in Japan for centuries, um, Japanese taste buds and tongues may be more used to the taste that comes from soy. And whether or not you find vegan cheese tasty or not could in part depend on your culinary background. It's an interesting point and thanks very much for getting in touch. Amit, one more email this week. Yes, uh, John from Manchester wrote in. He's a long-time listener, first-time emailer. Uh, just to raise a point on our pronunciation of the word muon, uh, which is a new type of particle, I think. I vaguely remember from Vicky's fact last week. Uh, so we had pronounced it muons, and I think it should be muons, uh, which is a minor point. Uh, so apologies for that, John, but thanks for writing in. It's a very, very important point. You can't mix up your muons and your muons. It's not a cow, it's a cat. That's my understanding anyway. Podcast.wire.co.uk. If you want to call us out on any of our pronunciation errors or anything else at all, send in your facts, send in random observations, and we'll read out a selection of our favourite emails each and every week. Thank you so much for listening, as always. Have a good one, and we'll see you again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.